0: Part two, the status quo. Our nervous system has been programmed by our genetic heritage and societal upbringing. The status quo is most of what we know of life and is made up by the first four circuits in the Eighth Circuit model. I'll be discussing the attributes of each of the first four circuits and will be providing some examples of what programming at each circuit does to one's personality and interactions with the world. I'll then close this part by describing why living a life limited to the first four circuits creates robots and worse, vampires. Not literally, I mean those metaphorically. Circuit one is basic orientation. It's our nervous system's first program or imprint, a term that I'll explain shortly. This circuit is all about how we inhabit and orient ourselves within our human body relative to the environment around us. This circuit is all about biological survival at its most fundamental level. Circuit One programming determines whether our nervous system has a bias to view the world as safe or unsafe. Each of us has a nervous system programmed to a default location on this spectrum here. The programming comes from early life experiences. Most of us have default settings that fall somewhere in the middle. We lean towards an extreme during times of stress or times of joy. Someone with a world of safe bias has a personality that is interested in novelty, risk-taking. And that is a personality that is adventurous and enjoys change. These are people who are what we'd call comfortable in their skin. This personality's default orientation to life is a towards state. They move towards change and risk. Someone with a world is not safe default setting results in a personality that is resistant to change, risk adverse, and often ready to fight or flee. This is the well-known fight or flight reaction we learn about in biology class. This reaction kicks in when someone shifts into a not safe mode. Someone who has a not safe default program lives in an away state. They move away from change and from risk. These are personalities very often suspicious of the world around them. Our place on the spectrum can change drastically due to circumstances, but generally speaking our circuit one default programming remains the same throughout life, barring any future reprogramming experiences. I keep using the computer term programming, but there is a more appropriate term, imprinting. Imprinting is a very rapid learning that happens at particular stages of one's development. Imprinting in the nervous system results in behavioral patterns and preferences that the learner may not be aware of. Filial imprinting is where a young animal rapidly narrows its social preferences to an object, typically a parent. This has been used by mankind for centuries in domesticating animals. Austrian naturalist Conrad Lorenz, pictured here with his ducks, became the first to establish the science behind the imprinting process. Lorenz found that when young birds came out of their eggs, they would become socially bonded to the first moving object they encountered. In most cases in the wild, that would be their mother. But Lorenz replaced himself as the object of their affection. And it wasn't just him that the young birds would attach themselves to as a mother substitute. They would just as easily attach to inanimate objects if they were presented at the right time. Once that learning is fixed or programmed it is not likely to be forgotten or unlearned. In the photo you'll see that the curious case of a leopard in India who bonded to a cow. This leopard would visit and snuggle with the cow at night. No one really knows why or how this happened, but the theory I find most convincing is that somehow the leopard imprinted this cow or, or all cows as caregivers. It's reasonable to think that imprinting is an important learning process in human beings. After all, these bodies of ours are mammals. But it, it's unclear exactly how this process works in human babies, although there are plenty of theories. Human babies can't go out to forage for food like the young of other species. Rapid imprinting is likely essential to our survival. It is commonly understood that a strong bond with caregivers is critical in a human's early life. There are studies that show fetuses have a preference for faces. This was studied using light displays to get a fetus's attention. Attachment theory has gained prominence in the past century. In attachment theory, infants become socially bonded to adults who remain as consistent caregivers during the six months to two years of age. During the latter part of this period, children begin to use attachment figures, familiar people, as a secure base to explore from and return to. These early relationships lead to internal working models which will guide the individual's feelings, thoughts, and expectations in later relationships in life. Besides early relationships, there are other factors likely at work when it comes to our circuit one. In the past few decades, epigenetic studies indicate there is a strong possibility, and some would say likelihood, that the environment one's mother lives in, as well as the experiences the parents are going through during conception and a fetus's development in the womb, cause rapid modifications in the fetus's DNA. The idea is something like If one's parents are highly stressed, let's say fighting for survival in a barren landscape, the child will be born better prepared for a tougher environment. The child would somewhat be predisposed to not trust the world around them. They'd be predisposed for the not safe side of the circuit one spectrum. Adults heavily imprinted towards world is not safe often experience chronic anxiety. They are prone to worries about survival and can be quite sensitive to criticism. Dr. Gabor Mate, a Hungarian-Canadian physician, has done a lot of work on the subject of addiction in adults. He has concluded that there is a connection between being born and raised in not-safe environments and growing up to suffer from psychological illness resulting in addictive behaviors. Mate believes that addiction is an attempt to solve a problem. One could say that addicts are attempting to reset their circuit one imprints, attempting to find the warm, loving, safe world they've never experienced. Writer Kirkland Newman Smulders summarizes Mate's work as saying, Our brains have opiate receptors and endogenous opiates help us cope with pain. Just a thought can trigger the release of our internal painkillers, which is why Dr. Mate." is not interested in the particular substance or behavior that the person is addicted to, end quote. Mate's next book is titled The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. Just the title of the work alone speaks to a key theme in his work, which is, that a primary factor behind the depression and anxiety epidemic many countries are facing is the fact that people are being raised in psychologically and or physically unsafe environments. This results in giant multinational medical companies profiting greatly off of treating the symptoms of unsafe circuit 1 imprints without healing the imprints themselves. Talk therapy, antidepressant medications, And A.A. can of course be incredibly useful and powerful in improving people's quality of life but again these address symptoms not necessarily root causes. Christina Groff spent decades working on the subject of the intersection between addiction and spirituality. She said that alcoholics are an exaggerated form of all of us. Every human being struggles with attachment. Christina herself struggled with alcoholism and worked to bridge the gap between Addiction studies and the concept of attachment in Eastern religions such as Buddhism and some forms of Hinduism. The root of all suffering is attachment, said the Buddha. The concept of attachment in Eastern tradition is widely misunderstood, I think. Often it's taken to mean that people should not want, desire, or enjoy anything in life. That somehow a true spiritual adherence should be totally neutral to the world around them. This is not accurate in my opinion. Instead, I think the true meaning behind this teaching can be found by understanding circuit one imprinting, and by understanding that addictive compulsive behavior arises when someone's default imprint is set to unsafe or away. One's inner craving for safety and comfort leads to compulsive behavior, which in turn leads to disastrous consequences for oneself and society as a whole. Our circuit one imprint can't be fixed through desperate clinging to people, Objects and situations in our lives. The Buddha knew it thousands of years ago, and it's more true today than ever. In part four of this talk, we'll talk about how circuit one imprints can be addressed in a productive fashion. So, on to circuit two, which is called emotional politics. This one is all about the status and territorial behavior we exhibit as mammals. It also explains the toddler's terrible twos. In circuit two, we start to develop roles within our family dynamic and also start to understand territories and boundaries. Territoriality is common in many species of mammals. And of course, human beings are no exception. As many parents know, toddlers like to test boundaries. In circuit two, we start developing a basic sense of personal identity entitlement. The roles we play in life and what we feel we're entitled to as individuals get imprinted by family dynamics. Just look at how something like birth order influences one's life. While the hard science of birth order affecting personality is disputed, it's hard to argue against the idea that firstborns, middle children, and the baby of the family can play very different roles within our family dynamic. When our circuit two role or territory comes under attack, competition and conflict ensues. Circuit two develops into a domination submission, a high status, low status dynamic. Societal dominance hierarchies develop from circuit two. You can find this everywhere in adult life, in the business world, politics, and any social group really. Elaine de Botton, a well-known author and popularizer of philosophy, wrote a fascinating book on status in society called status anxiety. The influence of status can often be subtle and also not so subtle, since circuit two can be understood to motivate entire cultures and political movements. Competitively ranking oneself higher and higher within social hierarchies is a way of life for most people. Very, very few of us are immune to this. Even the role of the outsider hippie or withdrawn monk is a role within a social dynamic. These outsider roles contain their own ranking in relationship to cultural hierarchies. Circuit 2 is a circuit we are referring to when at a dinner party someone says, Hey, let's not talk about religion or politics. This is because questioning of one's status or territory leads to amplified emotional reactions. Circuit two is a circuit that drives cliques in school, sports fandom, large corporate organizations, political movements, especially populist or ultra patriotic ones and cults. Circuit two fuels tribalism. This is the circuit that drives the quest for one's name to be in the history books or on buildings. Now, when you combine circuit one and circuit two programming, things get interesting. According to Wilson, combining the first two circuit imprints creates a useful alignment with transactional analysis, a popular but semi-discredited psychological theory that developed in the 1960s, to help explain why we think, act, and feel the way we do in social interactions. Transactional analysis claim that we can better understand ourselves by analyzing our interactions with the people closest to us. The most well-known aspect of transactional analysis are the four quadrants. You may have heard of these before. If we're going to continue to indulge in computer or robotic metaphors, we can see circuit one and circuit two imprints as our default settings for most of our life. You can have a default setting of friendly strength, I'm okay, you're okay. A personality default that generally is confident, happy, and gets on with other people even when there are points of disagreement. This is someone who takes a wider and more balanced perspective of status issues. Friendly weakness, I'm not okay, you're okay. This personality defaults is considered to have low self-esteem. They will always put others before them due to their strong urge to please others. Hostile strength, I'm okay, you're not okay. This personality default sees themselves superior in some ways to others. These are personalities who enjoy wielding authority as much as possible and you have hostile weakness. I'm not okay, you're not okay. This personality default seems bitter, burdened by a general sense of betrayal and retribution. There is a feeling of powerlessness that strongly influences their behavior. This setting causes harm to oneself and to others. Of course, this isn't hard science. Uh, We all spend time in each of these, but I think this is a helpful guide to understanding people's default what they go back to most often, what works for them in life most often. Now on to circuit three, linguistic reality. Circuit three can be understood as a circuit of the intellect. Circuit three is all about information, language and the virtual symbolic worlds that we create with it. In circuit three, we use symbolic information and develop complex interpersonal communication called language. Our capacity to accept concepts, dogmas, and codes of behavior is essential to imprinting. The body's nervous system is constantly receiving and interpreting all sorts of symbolic information, such as spoken words, writing, images, charts, blueprints, maps, and math. There are all forms of symbolic information that the nervous system learns to process and learns to decode. The imprinting that happens in circuit 3 may be the most obvious and well understood, Circuit 3 is what formal education starting with preschool is mostly focused on reading, writing, arithmetic. The education we receive and the media we are exposed to is incredibly influential in shaping our personality and our perspectives on the world. Human beings learn to manipulate the world physically based on what we learn from others through these symbol systems. In a sense, Circuit 3 provides each of us with an information-based operating system for us to operate within the physical world. Alfred Kuczybski was a Polish-American scholar who developed a field of study called General Semantics. He argued that human knowledge of the world is both limited by the human nervous system and the languages humans have developed. No one has direct access to actual reality. The most that we can know is what's filtered through the nervous system. His best known saying is the map is not the territory. This saying was later popularized by counterculture philosopher Alan Watts. Circuit one and two imprinting is in a sense timeless. The imprints affect you exactly the same at age five or 45. Look at the angry Karen phenomenon, for example. These are people who are basically throwing circuit two toddler tantrums and who don't even recognize their own childish emotion status related behavior. Circuit 3 is a circuit where time becomes a factor. In circuit 3 we become intellectually time-bound, Kajipski's term. We are all intellectually bound to time. You can almost say we're yoked to time. Studies have shown that it is not until around the age of 4 to 6 that children become competent at narrating themselves as an actor in time. Around age 3 it's said that children understand the difference between before and after in clear instructions. Around four, they start using words like before, after, day, night, morning, yesterday, right now, later. Around the age of five, children start delaying instant gratification for hypothetical futures more often. From about that age and onwards, we learn about history. We begin to intellectualize our future and begin understanding the concept of death. With circuit three activated, our lives now span a symbolic timeline from a symbolic date that we are told we were born to some unknown symbolic date in the future when our bodies will stop operating. This is what I call the circuit three story of me. I'll be referring to that throughout the entirety of the talk. Psychologists discovered that around age four to five, children begin to understand themselves as a personality in contrast to others. People create a storyline for themselves, a persona in the classic Greco-Roman sense. The word persona, of course, is where we get the word personality from. These are ancient masks that actors used to wear on stage playing different characters. When circuit three is activated, we carry around ideas about who we are, what our perspective should be, what we like, what we don't like in our entire personal history. We craft a character that communicates to others who we are. We begin to believe that we are that character. We call this character the analog I, some others call it the ego. It's a character we build in our minds of who we are. This character moves through time and represents itself by taking independent action in the world of human society. Strong circuit 3 imprinting can be very helpful to have in our so-called information age. Academics, technocrats, nerds, geeks, and people in knowledge-based or technical occupations have a higher status in modern society than probably ever before. People nowadays believe that most, if not all, societal problems can be solved by just applying the right information or technology. Rationality, logic, debate, standardized tests, spelling bees, these are all activities that rely on memory and recall. Memory and recall is now central to formal education and success in the business world. Kajipsky said that, quote, the capacity for accumulating human experience, enlarging it, and transmitting it for future expansion is the particular power and the definitive nature of man. End quote. Here's an awesome quote from Carl Sagan, the beloved original host of the popular science show Cosmos. One glance at a book and you're in the mind of another person. Maybe somebody dead for thousands of years across the millennia. An author is speaking directly to you, binding together people from distant epochs. Books break the shackles of time. He wasn't a big fan of Robert Anton Wilson and Wilson wasn't a big fan of Carl Sagan, but they had very similar thoughts on the importance and uniqueness of time binding in man. Kajipsey understood that information exchange would continue to speed up. Time binding has increased its influence on current generations and the information age. The internet can be understood as an extension of the human nervous system, a gigantic circuit three information system. The amount of information being shared on the internet is mind-boggling and more and more is added every second. The speed with which it is shared is unimaginable. The cliché insult against nerds that they live in a basement disconnected from the world stems from a basic, somewhat unconscious understanding of the major problem with having a culture that values strong Circuit 3 imprints over almost everything else. It is all too easy to disconnect from what's happening in sense reality. The world of intellect, language, and symbolism can be a trap. Circuit 3 creates a cloud of ideas, a cloud that obscures the real life around us. We superimpose ideas and value systems on the real world. Like Alan Watts liked to say, we live in a world that wiggles and moves, but humans perverse stable, straight lines and corners. For many of us, Circuit 3 imprinting, such as the story of me, have become a central focus of our lives. The maps that we use to navigate through life become our lives, and we disconnect from physical reality. Therein lies the wisdom of Kajipsky's famous quote, The map is not the territory. Our ideas and symbols of reality are not reality. They are a map. The issue was well known to ancient thinkers. In some forms of Hindu philosophy, this false intellectualized world is referred to as Advidya. This is an artist's rendering of the famous allegory of the cave, an allegory described by the original academic Plato. In this allegory, you have prisoners living their entire lives in the dark. They have zero awareness of the outside world. In fact, all they know of are the shadows on the wall. These shadows are just representations of objects passing in front of a fire. The prisoners have no contact with the actual objects. The shadows on the wall are the only reality they know. When a prisoner escapes and sees the real world, they go back in and tell their fellow prisoners about it. But the other prisoners don't believe that there is a real world out there. They're too caught up in the symbolic shadow reality. After thousands of years, this is still a powerful allegory. Perhaps now more than ever, people live their lives based on symbolic information and disregard what their senses are telling them. Constructed symbolic realities allow us to resist new information. In the age of social media, the persona, the story of me, has more momentum than it ever had. Most of us now have a highly public record of our personal history, likes and dislikes posted online for many to see. This all serves to imprison us further into our persona. We are locked into our story of me. Social media algorithms feed people content that fits into their story of me and the story of the world. These ideas strengthen pre-existing biases and block out new information. We have become a personal brand and we must live up to that personal brand or face consequences. Circuit 3 opens us up to intellectual manipulation. Robert Anton Wilson said, The easiest way to be brainwashed is to be born. Many of us gravitate towards charismatic figures who can provide a Circuit 3 map of the world that will calm Circuit 1 and Circuit 2 anxieties and discomfort. People offering such maps can wield tremendous power over others. Wilson said that we all live in reality tunnels, individual realities that each of us lives in. Reality tunnels have become online reality bubbles, where people interact in ways they wouldn't dare to in physical reality, especially on Twitter. Circuit 3 reality tunnels easily turn into dogmatic beliefs that are passed on to others, inherited from generation to generation. This obviously has very serious consequences and I could pull from any number of historical or modern social political issues to use as an example. But instead, I'll share a personal story. In my late teens, I was friends with two roommates. I'll call them John and Paul. One day, Paul was mopping the kitchen floor with a mixture of floor cleaning liquid and water. John comes into the kitchen and becomes furious. He begins yelling, floors are cleaned with ammonia. Paul was shocked and said, it's okay, I'm I'm using floor cleaner, but John just kept repeating, floors are cleaned with ammonia. John would not accept any other way of cleaning the floor. In his reality tunnel, the floor wasn't clean until it was cleaned with ammonia. John had been taught to clean floors with ammonia, probably by his parents. So this became an entrenched dogma to the point he would literally yell this at his close friend. Now, it's easy to point fingers and make fun of other people's dogmatic beliefs and odd reality tunnels, but let's make this clear. We all live within our own reality tunnel. We all use language in virtual symbolic realities to relate to the world. It's part of living in the status quo. Now we come to the final status quo circuit. This circuit is summed up by yet another Robert Anton Wilson quote. Human society as a whole is a vast brainwashing machine whose semantic rules and sex roles create a social robot. Circuit four is circuit three, but on hormones. When we hit puberty, the hypothalamus in our brain begins to produce a hormone that increases sex hormones, estrogen in cis girls and testosterone in cis boys. These biological changes in the body add a new dynamic to circuit three reality tunnels, which are becoming entrenched and more influential as we enter young adulthood. Sigmund Freud, known as the founder of modern psychology, spent much of his career exploring matters related to circuit four. Circuit four aligns with the genital stage of Freud's psychosexual theory of personality development. Freud believed that life was built around tension and pleasure. Freud thought that all tension is due to the buildup of sexual energy and all pleasure that came from its discharge. For Freud, adolescence is a time for sexual experimentation, and that time comes to an end, successfully, when one settles down in a loving relationship with someone of the opposite sex. He thought that sexual perversions may develop if this genital stage isn't successfully completed. Modern day folks think that Freud was probably overly fixated with this subject because he had his own personal demons to contend with, and it's safe to say, He was outright wrong about same-sex relationships. Gender studies and human sexuality are major fields of study. These subjects are too large for an in-depth analysis in this talk, but I will touch upon some recognizable circuit four issues because sex and gender exerts a tremendous amount of influence on one's persona. Every society has rules and norms around sex and reproduction. If someone's sexual desires do not conform to these norms, Mainstream society will consider this person unhealthy, immoral, and or perverted. Some make the resistance to this mainstream sexual culture an essential aspect of their personality. Most others hide their true desires from society. They live in the closet. The closet isn't just about homosexuality. There are many different kinds of people in the closet. While on the subject of homosexuality, I'll mention a few relevant points. Psychologists considered homosexuality a psychological disorder for many years. The American Kinsey Research Institute has been studying human sexuality since 1947. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, they published a series of books which introduced the Kinsey Scale. The Kinsey Scale explains how sexuality does not fit into two strict categories, but rather falls on a scale. More and more people now accept sexual orientation is a part of one's intrinsic nature, and LGBTQ plus issues have been increasingly destigmatized, but there are still many cultures that consider sexuality to be binary and homosexuality to be a moral and psychological illness. Unfortunately, punishments for being LGBTQ plus in some cultures can be incredibly severe. So many hide their true desires out of fear crafting a false heterosexual personality. Switching topics somewhat, as you may recall, imprinting is a process where rapid learning happens within a sensitive period in early life. This rapid learning is instigated by specific experiences that seemingly program and imprint the nervous system to have particular preferences and biases. Anna Aronson, published a study in 2013 via Oxford Press that argues that sexual imprinting may provide an explanation both for common and uncommon fetishes. She says it's hard to provide evidence and it's hard to design studies that would generate this evidence but many people including myself believe there's anecdotal evidence for this. British author and podcaster John Ronson interviewed men who had very specific sexual fetishes for his audible series The Butterfly Effect Season one, one man enjoyed watching videos of a fully clothed woman leaving her home with suitcases in hand. A small creature would attempt to stop her from leaving. He explained to Ronson that his mother had left him when he was very young. She packed her suitcases and gave him a kiss goodbye. This was, I believe his only memory of her. This event was imprinted in his nervous system. Another man explained that he had been a foot fetishist ever since he was a young boy when asked to give female friends foot massages. Imprinting seemingly plays a role in some sexual disorders too. Robert Anton Wilson liked to share a Kinsey Institute case where a teenager was about to kiss his girlfriend in a parked car. A police officer shined his flashlight into the car right when he leaned in for the kiss. The young man got so scared at that moment that for the rest of his life, he was not able to sustain an erection when initiating sex. Imprinting may play a role in why former victims of child molestation abuse children themselves. Again, there is so much more that can be said here. The main point is that one's sexual proclivities or behaviors aren't always under one's conscious control. Most societies encourage particular forms of sexual and familial arrangements for cultural and political reasons. If our sexual proclivities are well aligned with society's values, all good. There's no problem. But if they're not aligned, this can lead to all sorts of issues. The urge to take on social sexual identity is strong in even those who don't have sex or never become parents. This leads to some really fascinating behavior. Some anecdotal examples that catch my attention are calling one's partner baby or daddy or mommy. That's pretty commonplace in some cultures. In his Audible series, The Last Days of August, John Ronson discusses the phenomenon of older men taking on unhealthy father roles for young women working in the pornography business. There's also the phenomenon of people taking on parental roles for domesticated pets. Well-known dog trainer Cesar Milan doesn't call his clients dog owners, he calls them pet parents. And it's not uncommon to see pets and baby strollers and social media posts about being a dog mommy or a dog daddy. There has been a controversial push for pedophiles to be accepted as a social group, forming organizations like NAMBLA. They argue pedophilia is a sexual orientation. Needless to say, that's not working and strongly disputed by experts. The incel phenomenon is interesting to me. These are men who gather together online and discuss being involuntary celibates. They aren't able to find sexual partners. They consider themselves so unappealing to potential sexual partners that they've created a societal role and a niche culture for themselves. They vent and rage, often spewing hate online. I think most of us can probably see that Freud's idea of sexually well-adjusted adults is unrealistic. No matter how sex-positive modern westernized culture seems to have become, there aren't a lot of people who have found the right balance between social-sexual rules and expressing their true desires and identity openly. Many go through life with unsettled issues about their sexual life and desires. This is evidenced by the popularity of figures like the late Dr. Ruth and Dan Savage, who provides sex advice to everyday people. And there's the 2010 bestseller Sex at Dawn, which caused a stir with descriptions of human beings as promiscuous primates. The authors argue that monogamy has a cultural and intellectual basis rather than a biological basis. Being labeled an outcast in some societies can literally mean death, but shaming is more common. The avoidance of shame is a powerful behavioral driver and control mechanism that's been used for thousands of years. Shaming isolates, degrades people in ways that make some prefer physical punishment. By publicly shaming a person, their value as a human being, as a player in society, is diminished. Babylon was known for creating the first public behavioral code that we know of. A pillar with these laws can be seen here on the left. This was the first known society to live by a written set of laws. In fact, there are some current laws that can find their basis in this code. The code had physical punishment, but also public shaming elements. Here you can see a painting of a Japanese man and woman being publicly displayed in shame for infidelity. Stocks, pillory, tar, and feathering were common forms of British punishments for over a century. Here's a drug dealer that was tar and feathered in the UK not that long ago. The digital age has brought about the phenomenon of online shaming. Journalist John Ronson wrote a great book about the subject in 2015 called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Ronson's book demonstrates how public shaming has become a major part of internet culture. Often people are shamed by thousands upon thousands of strangers for relatively minor transgressions often these shamings have major psychological effects on those shamed and mean very little to those doing the shaming anonymously online. Social cliques take on a different character post-puberty. High school and secondary school cliques are circuit four phenomenon. Oftentimes the shared identity in these social groups is rooted in or influenced by sexual identity and circuit four sexual attractiveness becomes a status tool. This was dramatized in the comedy film mean girls where the hot girls are the most popular and influential group within the school the combination of social identity cliques and status games inevitably leads to gossip and with this we come to the end of circuit four and the end of most people's imprinting and social development yes in later adult years some of us can experience hard lessons learned or tragedies which reorient and reimprint some behaviors and attitudes but much of this is like rearranging furniture in a house same old stuff just in a more comfortable or safe or productive layout maybe we learn to round off the edges of our sharpest most harmful imprints and learn to play social games more effectively maybe we learn to accept some of our genuine desires instead of keeping up appearances maybe we care less about status as we get older that's all good But this isn't transcending the status quo. And frankly, most people don't seem to progress further than the high school clique mentality. After several years of personal experience in the business world in office environments, and in music, art, and religious social groups, it's clear to me that many never develop past high school mentality. So that was a whistle-stop tour through the first four circuits. And there's so much more that can be discussed about each of them. But I think that was enough to paint a picture for you. Strong imprints on one or two circuits can lead to compulsive behavior and entrenched personality traits. Each of us is imprinted differently, which leads to all sorts of complicated interpersonal dynamics and views of the world. Something important to take note about the first four circuits is that most, if not all of this imprinting is out of our conscious control. Much of it happens in childhood when we barely know what's going on, when we have zero control over the situations and people that we're exposed to. So society and culture is sort of like random computer programming by people who themselves were randomly programmed. This situation creates robotic, unfulfilling lives. Life can seem totally meaningless under these circumstances. In the 1960s, Timothy Leary liked to call his audiences beloved robots. Kherjeef, pictured here, was a philosopher and mystic. He called the status quo personality a robot self. He liked to say that most people are asleep, and as you might know, this is a popular metaphor and can be heard in various philosophical and religious traditions. You might hear of the sleeping masses or the dead that need to be awakened. Now playing armchair psychologist here, and this is pure conjecture, uh, I suspect that pop culture's obsession with zombies in the recent decades has a lot to do with unconscious recognition of this. The horror comedy, Shaun of the Dead, explicitly compares the lifeless routines of modern life with those of zombies. Carl Jung speaks to this issue. Collective man becomes a soulless herd animal governed by only panic and lust. A soul which can live only in and from human relationships is irretrievably lost. Another horror trope that I think is helpful for understanding the status quo is that of vampires. Society with its constant power, status, and territorial struggles creates and maintains incentives for people to constantly be attempting to get something from someone else. Using people, objects, and creating advantageous situations for one's own personal pleasure is a way of life. This is accepted as normal and healthy. The hard truth is that in modern society, most everyone you know wants something from you in some way, including your family. If you're not valuable to them, you're often discarded, either outright or subtly. If we're living a life limited to behavior driven by circuit one through circuit four imprints, we're going to do the same. Manipulation, fear, defensiveness reign supreme. Much of modern civilized life is based on compulsive addictive behavior and constant manipulation. Worst of all, the reigning narrative is that this is human nature. Darwin's insights about natural selection have been applied to human social interactions and we're told it's natural for us to behave this way. Well, I disagree. This is behavior conditioned by our environment, conditioned by our culture, and imprinted by our upbringing. And it is possible to be different. This is another C.G. Jung quote and a painting from his Red Book. I want to exist from my own force, like the sun, which gives light and does not suck light. And with that quote, we have now arrived at the end of part two, and we're ready to cover the higher circuits, which begin to address how we can become our own force, like the sun, which gives light and does not suck light.